Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, which is a passage that you'll be very familiar with, and we'll recite it together in just a moment. But before we do, let me just tell you what a great privilege it is to be here with you. I remember many of you in times that I've been here in the past, and I'm really glad that you remember me, too. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Most people forget me as fast as they can. So it's really good when people remember me, and thank you for that great welcome you've given me already. But I also want to say this to you. Uh, This is not a time when I normally give great compliments to churches and things like that, because normally I don't feel like the churches deserve them. But I want to let you know that of the many churches I visit through a given year, not just in this country, but around the world, if you don't know this, you should know this. You have one of the most magnificent ministries in the entire world right here in this church. The vision that this church has, the commitment it has, and the way that it works just locally by itself is beyond measure. But even beyond that, the vision you have for reaching beyond this local place is phenomenal. And I hope you can praise the Lord for that. I hope you can be grateful for that. Not sit back in pride and satisfaction and complacency, but delighted that God has given you the great privilege of being here together in this church. And we should honor him for that. I'm going to ask you to recite with me as our scripture reading this morning, the Lord's Prayer. And if you'd stand, we're going to do this together, not as a prayer, but as a recitation. But I need to ask you, do you have trespassers or debtors in your church? You have debtors only. No trespassers today. Okay? You're all free of all your trespasses. Don't worry about them. You're all just a bunch of debtors. We all know that when Jesus was asked to teach his disciples how to pray, he taught them to pray this way. Our Father... Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus. These are words that you taught thousands of years ago. And these are words that we know so well we can stand up and recite them together. We pray them frequently. We remember them in this way and that way. And because of that, Lord, many times we pass right through them, not even thinking about what they might mean for our lives. And so we're praying now that you will send Holy Spirit to us. And that he will come and fill each person in this room so that our blind eyes may see and our deaf ears may hear you speak. And we're praying, Lord, that Holy Spirit will come and soften our hearts that we may love you more dearly and serve you more faithfully because of this, your holy word. And as you do that, We promise and we pledge to you the praise for it. We pledge to you the honor for it. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. If you've lived very long, and from the looks of this group, a number of you have lived quite a while, I think you'll know what I'm about to say is true. You can start off a project with a good vision for that project. It may be true, it may be good, it may be wholesome, but... 
like every project, when you come to the hard times of getting that job done and succeeding with it, if your vision isn't big enough and if it isn't deep enough, you're going to run out of steam. You're just going to give up. I mean, can you remember when you first got married? Those of you who are married, can you remember when you looked at each other and you said, sweetheart, I don't need anything in this world but you. I got you, babe. I may not have money to pay the rent, but I got you, babe. And that's all we need, isn't it? Then six months later, you find out you really do have to pay the rent, too, or things are going to fall apart. Or do you remember when you had your first child, those of you that have children, and you looked at each other and said, now, uh, we're not going to make our kids as neurotic as our parents made us, are we? And then they become teenagers, and you wonder if you did as well as your parents did. And it's easy in that kind of a situation, when the rough times come, when the hard times come, to give up even on a good and worthwhile project. To make it through the hard times, you have to have a vision for your life that's big enough and deep enough to get you through those hard times. And that's true with the Christian life also. It's true of your personal life as a follower of Christ. It's true of your family as a family of Christ. It's true of this local church. It's true of the body of Christ throughout this world. If we don't get a vision that's bigger than what we've got right now, and if we don't get a vision that's deeper than what we have right now, we're going to give up and just settle into complacency and settle settle into the status quo. Now, there are many places in the Bible where Jesus gives us this kind of big and deep vision. Many places. But one of the places where he gives us this kind of vision is in the Lord's Prayer. I mean, think about it this way. What do you pray for except things that are important to you? I mean, when is it that you really get down and start praying like you ought to? It's when something's going wrong or something's going badly that you really care about. Well, here's Jesus being asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us how to pray. So what's he going to tell them to do? He's going to tell them to pray about the things that are important to him and the things he wants to be important to them, too. But I've noticed something about most Christians that I meet, and it's basically this, that most of us live our Christian lives with a vision that comes out of the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer. And you know how it goes. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, please help me depend on you more. Forgive us our debts. Lord, please forgive me. I've done it again. Please forgive me. And we seek for the assurance of that forgiveness. And then lead us not into temptation. Lord, please help me do better tomorrow than I did today. I mean, that's where most of us are in our Christian lives. We're trying to depend more on God. We're trying to find forgiveness in Christ. We're trying to do better tomorrow than we did today. And if that's where you are, way to go. You're way ahead of most of the world. Those are important things. Forgiveness, dependence, doing better. Those are very important things for Christian people. But I want to say something to you. I don't think that's where Jesus actually gives us the big vision and the deep vision. There's something common among those three last petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Did you hear them? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. The common element is us. We are the common element. But in the top half of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' attention is somewhere else. And you know how that goes. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is where you can find Jesus' grand vision for your life. 
But those words are so familiar that many times we pass right by them. And when we stop to consider what Jesus is actually saying, we discover that that he challenges us to change the way we think about certain things, to change the way we feel about certain things, to change the way we act with respect to certain things. And the first thing he challenges us to change is the way we view God. You know how it goes. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, when we hear those words, our Father, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've come to love Christ, you know those are precious words to you. Because we know that to as many as receive Christ, to them he gives the right to be called the children of God. The God of heaven and earth, the creator of everything, actually tenderly and paternally loves people who come to Christ. He knows their names. He cares about them. He wants to be near them. He wants them near to him. And that's a lovely thing. In fact, that's part of the good news of Jesus Christ that we proclaim. It's part of the gospel we proclaim. And that is, if you just believe in Jesus, you can become the child of God and God will be your father. And the world around us needs to hear that message. I had the privilege of being in Indonesia two days after the tsunami hit Sri Lanka, Thailand, and Indonesia. I was already scheduled to be there. I was going to be teaching in Jakarta. And on the way, the mission board of my denomination asked me if I would be eyes and ears for them over there to see if I could find some groups we might work with. And so I did. I went around talking to people. And most of the people to whom I spoke were Muslim. And I would always ask them, Two questions at the beginning of these conversations. I always ask them first, do you think God had anything to do with this? Do you think God had anything to do with this tsunami? And of course, they would give the right answer. Inshallah, everything is according to the will of Allah. God is in control of the storms, the earthquakes, life and death. Oh, they give the right orthodox Islamic answer. But then I would follow up and I'd say something like this. I'd say, uh, do you find any comfort when you pray to God about this? Do you find any peace? And every single time, I got the same reaction, a sort of nervous giggle. And then, no, I don't find any peace when I pray to him because all I'm doing is praying, please don't do this to me too. You see, in mainline Islam, now it's different on the edges of it, but in the center of Islam, God is considered so far away, so transcendent, so distant from us that he doesn't know you by name. He doesn't care about your life. He doesn't care about your children. He doesn't care what happens to you. You're just a cog in the machine. You're just a tiny little pawn in his world. So this is great news we have as Christians. That if you come to Christ, you matter to him. That he cares for you like a loving, tender father ought to care for his children. So good news. But I'm convinced of something. And it's basically this, that in this country, we don't really normally have the problem of thinking of God as too far away. I mean, there are some people that do that, but by and large, that's not our problem. And so when we hear this expression, our father, what we think to ourselves is God is like a sweet granddaddy who sits up in heaven rocking in his rocking chair, wringing his hands like this, saying to himself, is there anything I can do to get people down there on that planet to like me a little bit more? 
I mean, I've done so much already. I'll do anything to get their attention. Is there just one more thing I might be able to do so that I can love them like a grandfather ought to love his grandchildren? Now, I know what it's like for a grandfather to love his grandchildren. I am a grandfather. I'm a sweet old granddaddy. I've got an eight-year-old granddaughter, our oldest, who absolutely adores me. And I absolutely adore her, too. I mean, it's magnificent the kind of relationships grandfathers have with their grandchildren, especially their granddaughters. But I'm no fool. I know exactly why. It's because every single time I see Maggie, I pick her up and I hug her and I say, Maggie, I love you so much. And then the next words that come out of my mouth are these. Do you want to go to Toys R Us now? And I take her to Toys R Us and I buy her whatever she wants. I've been doing it for years. She loves me to death, but I know exactly why. It's because I'll buy her anything she wants. I don't care why she loves me. I just want her to love me. It works so well with her, I'm going to do it to the second one, and I'm going to do it to the third one that's coming. You see, that's the way a lot of people think of God. That he's like a sweet grandfather who will do just anything to take care of people on this planet. But I have some really good news for you. When Jesus says our father, he's not talking about God as a sweet granddaddy. No, on the contrary. And you know this is true because he doesn't just tell us pray our father. He tells us to pray our father in heaven. And every single time the Bible describes heaven, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, every single time heaven is described in the same way. Heaven is the throne room of God. It's where he sits as a great king, a great emperor over his creation, enthroned in glory, where light radiates from him, blinding light radiates from him. He's surrounded by rainbows, lightning and thunder are surrounding him, and he's worshipped by myriads upon myriads of creatures that bow down before him and constantly cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Hallowed be thy name. You see, that's the picture Jesus has in mind when he says, pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's telling us that the beginning point, the beginning point of having a vision for your life that's big enough and deep enough to get you through the hard times is to believe that God is your king. We sing it in songs, don't we? We sung it this morning several times. That God is our king. But you know, when you get right down to it, we don't have a clue what that might mean. You might be surprised that in the days of the Bible, they would even call human kings their fathers. They would call David their father. They would call this king their father. Because that's the way you described kings in the ancient world of the Bible. And we don't know what in the world to do with it. Because unless you come from another country, you have never lived under the authority of a king. You've never lived in a country where a person has your life and death in his hands. Where every single thing that this king says must be done. I come from Virginia. And I believe we have the best state flag in the Union. I'm convinced of it. Let me describe it to you. Maybe you've seen it before. It has this blue satin background, and in the middle is a circle. Now, most people know that much about the Virginia state flag, but they don't know what's inside the circle. So let me tell you what's inside the circle. Go look at it sometime. Check it out. 
confirm that what I'm telling you is true. Inside this circle is a picture. And it's a picture of a man lying dead on his back. And off of his head, on the ground, has fallen a crown. Got the picture? He's a dead king. The crown is lying next to him. And standing over that man is a woman. And she has her foot on the chest of this dead king and a spear in her hand. And written around the edge of that circle are these words in Latin. Sic semper tyrannis. Thus always to kings. You get the message? We will never have a king in the state of Virginia. And if anybody tries to become a king in the state of Virginia, what will we do? We'll send our women after them. And they know exactly what to do. Foot on his chest, spear in the hand. We can take care of kings. We're not going to have a king in the state of Virginia. And I don't think that's just true of the state of Virginia. I think it's true in Tennessee also. You see, in America, we are not going to have a king. We think of politicians as people to whom we give power. We think we're doing them a favor by electing them to office. And if they do a good job, we'll elect them back into office again. If not, we'll impeach them and get them out. We figure they're public servants. They serve us. We don't follow them. We are their masters. And what's true in politics bleeds over into your religion. To the point that we actually believe in the backs of our minds that we're doing God a favor when we do things for him. Oh, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go to church this week. That will make God really feel good about us. Oh, I'll tell you what we'll do. This year, we're going to do something really sacrificial. We're going to give 9% of our income to the church. Won't that please him? Because, you see, as far as we're concerned, we sort of figure everything we have belongs to us. And so we'll give a little bit to God to show him that we really like him, but... We're not going to treat him like an absolute emperor. If there's one thing that's true about kings, it's this. Kings are inconvenient. And do you know why? Because they have their own purposes. They have their own goals. They have their own dreams. And they expect their subjects to buy into their dreams and to serve their dreams and to be loyal to their goals and to sacrifice for their goals, even to the point of death. That's what kings do. And they're terribly inconvenient. And you know what that tells us? That tells us something here, friends. It tells us that if our Christian faith is convenient, if it fits well with your life, if it just fits like a hand in glove and you can go on and live your life like everybody else around you lives their lives and still be a Christian on top of that, then you and I are yet to know what it means to say God is our king. The beginning of having a vision that's great enough for you to make it through the hard times and deep enough for you to have something to give to your children that's worthwhile and to your grandchildren and to the generations beyond them. The beginning point is to believe that God is your king. So Jesus does challenge us, I think, to change the way we think about God 
It's a dramatic challenge. But he doesn't just challenge us in these opening words of the Lord's Prayer to reconsider what we think of God and what role he plays in our lives. He also challenges us, as strange as it sounds, to change the way we think about something else. And you know what it is? The earth. Listen to what he says. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our royal Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. You see, I told you he was thinking of God as king. Our Father, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you've heard those words before so many times that they just slip right through our mouths, don't they? Go right off, roll right off the tongue. We don't even think about what they might mean because what Jesus says here is, thy kingdom come. Well, Jesus, what does that mean? Sounds nice. Sounds very religious. But what's it mean? Well, he tells us, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Okay, I got it. So God's kingdom comes in places where his will is done. But Jesus, where do you want God's will to be done? Listen to what he says. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. I want you to notice something here. Jesus does not say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven because that's where we're all going anyway. What he says is... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this planet like it is in heaven. Heaven is not set up as the destiny. Heaven is not set up as the goal. Heaven is set up as the standard. Jesus wants something to happen on this planet. And what he wants to happen on this planet is for God's will to be done as perfectly here As it is in the heavenly places. Now, how well is God's will done in heaven? Well, when you read the Bible, everybody who's in the heavenly throne room does exactly what God tells them to do. Even Satan does. I don't know what happens if you disobey in heaven. I guess you melt or something. I don't know. It's not going to be good. I can tell you that. But they don't do it. Creatures do exactly what God tells them to do in heaven. And Jesus' vision that he gives to you and me is that this must be true on this planet as well. I've noticed something about evangelical Christians, especially in this country, and it's basically this. We think that truly spiritual people don't care about this world. We think that if you really are a mature Christian, then what you're going to do is be thinking about things up there. And you're going to be thinking about going up there. And you think of life here as something you simply pass through and you try to do the best you can so you can be sure to get there. I mean, most evangelical Christians think of the earth a lot like we think of the wrapping around a Christmas present. You know what it's like. You might look at the present for a moment and say, well, that's nicely wrapped. Isn't that pretty? But if you really are going after what you're supposed to go after, you rip the wrapping off and you go after what's most important to you. And it's what's inside the box, the gift. And in this case, the gift is going to heaven. Why did you become a Christian? To go to heaven. Why do you do the things you're doing? To go to heaven. We wrap up our whole lives in this notion that I'm going to one day go to heaven. But I want you to hear what Jesus says here. Jesus gave his disciples the vision that they must be people who are devoted to changing this earth.
want you to think for a minute about unbelievers that you may know, people with whom you work or maybe people in your neighborhood. What would they say if you were to ask them, what's a good life? I mean, the kind of life that at the last minute, as you're taking your last breath, you could look at it and you could say, I'm glad I lived that life. What kinds of things would unbelievers normally say to you, your friends who don't follow Christ? Well, most of them would say things like these. They would say things, well, a good life would mean uh, I hope not to get divorced more than once because it hurts a lot. And, And I don't want my kids hooked on drugs. That's important to me. And I need a career. I need a career that's good and I can make lots of money. And in fact, if I can make a lot of money and my investments really did well, well, then I could retire early. Then I could enjoy life before I get too old to enjoy life. That would be a good thing. That's a good life. And I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die, but I hope to die with just as little pain as possible. And in fact, the best way to die is in the middle of the night when you're asleep. That way you don't even know what's going to happen. So you die, and then if I find out once I'm dead that there is a God and there is a heaven, I hope he'll agree that I was good enough to get in. Now, that would be a good life for most unbelievers. But if you were to ask the very same question to a Christian, you know, or maybe even to yourself, what would be a good life? The kind of life you would be glad to have lived. And at the last moment, as you take your last breath, you could say this was good. What kinds of things would most evangelical Christians say? They say things like these. Well, I hope not to get divorced more than once. Because it hurts a lot. And I don't want my kids hooked on drugs. So that, that wouldn't be good. And I need a good career because, you know, I've got to take care of my family. I've got to make some money. And if I can make some really good money and my investments do well, well, then I could retire early. Because if you retire early, then you can, you know, enjoy life. And you don't have to worry about being too old to enjoy life. And I know I'm going to die, but I really want to die with just as little pain as possible. And the best way to die is in the middle of the night. You don't even know what's going to happen. And then when I die, because I believed in Jesus, my soul is going to begin to shake like this. And it's going to begin to sparkle like that. And it's going to sprout wings on it. And I'm going to fly away. And I'm going to go to heaven. And when I get to heaven, because I have the blood of Christ on me, St. Peter is going to say, come over here. And he's going to pull a golden harp off the wall. And he's going to give it to me. And he's going to say, go over there and start playing. And I'm going to play this golden harp in heaven forever and forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. You ever been in a choir? I mean, it's okay for a few hours, but forever? That sounds more like the other side to me. I mean, most Christians believe that the reason they are following Christ and serving him is so that they can spend eternity singing in choirs as if they were overdosed on Prozac in some kind of eternal bliss. I have some really great news for you. Jesus did not come to this planet. He did not live a perfect life. He did not die on the cross. He did not resurrect on the third day. He did not ascend into heaven. He does not rule over all things until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And he will not return in glory so that you can spend eternity overdosed on Prozac in the clouds. The truth is this. 
Jesus came to turn this earth into the kingdom of God. And when he returns in glory, he will give you what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. And you will reign with him in glory. You know how beautiful the earth is right now many times when you see a sunset or you see a mountain range or you see a painting or something like that. Even in this sinful fallen world, can you imagine this planet? Can you imagine this planet with no sickness, with no death, with no sorrow, with no unhappiness, filled with the glory of God himself, illuminated by his holy presence and you reigning with Jesus? That is your dream. That is is your destiny. That is your vision, Christian. You see, Jesus understood something that we have forgotten. He did not come to save us so that we could escape this planet. He came to turn this planet into the kingdom of God. You know, there is a religion that still believes that. Did you know that? There is a religion that still believes that God has a plan for the planet. And in fact, there is a religion that still believes that this planet is the theater of operation. This is where God proves that he is supreme. There's still a religion that believes that. This is the place, there is a religion that believes that this is the place where God's people will devote themselves to turning the world into the kingdom of God and that they will succeed. Do you know what religion it is? It's not yours. It's not yours. We gave up on that dream a long time ago. The religion that we're talking about is Islam. You wonder why they move to the places they move. You wonder why they sacrifice in the ways they sacrifice. You wonder why their sons and daughters strap bombs to themselves. You wonder why they're so radical, why they're so committed. It's because they have a dream. It's because they have a vision. They understand that this planet is the place where the gods battle and prove who is the true supreme God. Now, they got the wrong prophet. They've got the wrong God. But they got the right vision. They got the wrong way. It's not with bombs and guns. But they've got the right destiny in mind. Because you see, Jesus put you here on this planet to fulfill his vision. And the vision is that through the preaching of the gospel and the sacrificial living of God's people, this planet can be turned into the kingdom of God. Jesus' return guarantees success. Jesus' return guarantees that he will one day turn this planet into the magnificent palace of God, our God. And he calls each and every one of us to devote ourselves to that dream. Just how important should that be to you? I mean, for the most part, We don't consider it very important. We think what's really important is, you know, that I have a good devotional life and that I have a good prayer life. And if you're really spiritual, you'll be concerned about your nuclear family if you're really spiritual. But to be concerned about the world, to devote yourself to 
the task of turning the world into the kingdom of God, that's so far afield we don't even think about it usually. But I want to remind you of what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 6. As he talks about how important this vision of God's kingdom, transforming the world, was to him. Do you remember what he says at the end of Matthew 6? He talks about how people go after things in life. They go after money. They go after health. We all want to be healthy. They go after homes. They go after peace and good relationships. People go after all those kinds of things, don't they? Is what you and I seem to be spending all our time going after. But Jesus put it this way. He said, of all the things that you might seek in this world, many of which are perfectly legitimate in their place, he said, remember something. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is the number one goal in your life? What is the number one dream you have for your existence on this planet? Are you satisfied with just making some more money so you can get another house? Are you satisfied with making a little more money so you can pay for a little more medicine? Are you really satisfied with where you are in your life? Or have you heard what Jesus says? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And this is to be our number one goal in life, to see that take place. But if you get that kind of vision, you know what it means, don't you? It means other things will be sacrificed. It means the things that your neighbors go after will not be so important to you anymore. It means that the things to which you have devoted yourself for years will be set aside for something much more important. The coming of the kingdom of God to this planet. Was he crazy? Was Jesus just a lunatic about this? I mean, are we really supposed to believe that Jesus was right about this? Well, think about it this way. How did your faith begin? It was one man and 12 disciples. And one of them was the devil. So one man and 11 faithful disciples. Now, that's a small beginning, isn't it? But was Jesus crazy? Did he really believe correctly that God's world could be transformed by this band of 11 disciples? Well, think about your faith today. Where is Christianity today? Where are the followers of Christ today? We have gone from one man and 11 disciples to the point now that Christianity is literally in every corner of the planet. Jesus was not a lunatic. Jesus was not mad. He didn't call you to do something that was a losing cause. He called you to a winning cause. A winning cause. My father is very ill and has been for quite a while. And so we we spent a lot of time talking about the past. And I mentioned to him, oh, about a year ago, Dad, do you remember what you used to say to me every time I went out for an athletic event? He said, yeah, I remember. What was it? He said, well, I always said, be a good sport. And that's what he always did. The last words he always said was, Rich, be a good sport. And I hated that. Because you know what that meant, don't you? It meant he expected us to lose. I mean, who gets the good sportsmanship award in the trophy in the in the soccer tournament? Who gets it? Huh? The losers. I just hated that. 
And that is exactly the way most Christians think about their faith. They think that coming to Christ is joining a losing cause. That coming to Christ is gaining something that you actually end up losing. It's joining a team that's not going to win, but going to lose the battle for this planet. But they tell us, smile and be a good sport about it, and you get a little plastic trophy of playing a harp under the influence of eternal Prozac. I have really great news for you. When you came to Christ, you did not join a team that is going to lose. You joined a team, the body of Christ, and the body of Christ will win as we give the gospel of Christ to the world. And as we live that gospel out sacrificially, we will see this planet transformed into the kingdom of God. If you believe Christianity is a losing cause, keep your money. Buy something that might be significant, another gadget, another toy. If you believe that Christianity is a losing cause, don't go on a short-term mission. If you believe that Christianity is a losing cause, certainly don't give yourself to the mission of the church full-time for the rest of your life. Why would you want to waste your time that way? But if you can hear the words of Jesus, that his prayer, The prayer of the Son of God himself was, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And if you can understand that what Jesus prayed for will be done, then you can understand why you can give your money, why you can go on these short-term mission trips, why you can even consider giving your whole life to the cause of the mission. It's because our King Jesus will win. Now, that kind of vision can give you a reason for a living. It can give something to your children to make their lives worth living. And it can be something for your grandchildren and for your great-grandchildren after them. This is the vision Jesus wants his church to have. And when we do, we will see magnificent results. And we will see his kingdom go forth. Do you wonder why Islam is powerful in the Middle East? I can tell you why. It's because we have let them be powerful in the Middle East. And we even today think that we can take care of Islam with guns and bombs. The only thing that can take care of Islam is the gospel of Christ. Do you believe that? My mother always told me, Rich... Better safe than sorry. Do you tell your kids that? Better safe than sorry. You know what that meant. You know, don't run out into the street without looking, things like that. I think it's a good thing to teach children. But, you know, when it comes to your Christian faith, at this point in history, the reality is this. If you and I keep playing it safe, if you and I keep living our lives like we are, If you and I keep on unwilling to sacrifice, if you and I continue to play it safe, 
our children and our grandchildren are going to be sorry. Jesus was right. It is necessary to have a big vision. It is necessary to have a deep vision. And he put it this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are our king. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on this planet as it is in heaven. That's your vision. Now, go see it accomplished. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, every one of us, in one way or another, is putting other things in front of your kingdom. And we bow before you, our great king. And we say to you, today, we want your kingdom to come to this earth as it is in heaven. We recommit our lives to you. We recommit our resources to you. We recommit everything we have to you to making that first in our lives so that you may be praised and you may be honored. 